Dopey Podcast Dopey Podcast Well dopey now podcast. It's the time for the Dopey Podcast When you call in And dopey put all your life on blast And you call dopey in podcast. And talk about your past Because your life was furious, hardcore and fast So now is the time for the Dopey Podcast Dopey Podcast It's the Dopey Podcast The Dopey Podcast, yo This is the Dopey Podcast This is the Dopey Podcast Now if your life was furious, hardcore and fast You feel like you want to put your life on blast Just call up the show and I talk about your past Cause now is the time for the Dopey Podcast Dopey Podcast It's the Dopey Podcast The Dopey Podcast, yo This is the Dopey Podcast This is the Dopey Podcast This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu and Silver Lake, Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob to create a place where addicts could go to get treated with compassion and connection rather than control. They have a staff with decades of experience in treating addiction as well as co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI. They have amenities that you wouldn't believe, like surfing, sound bath meditation, the sweat lodge, you name it, they've got it. Um, Their detox is incredibly comfortable, I've heard from people that have been there, which is killer if you're kicking dope or pills or coke or alcohol you want a comfortable detox if possible from what i hear aloe is a great place to get clean and if you're fucked and you need a place to go and you don't know where else to go and you're willing to go to sunny southern california i totally recommend going to aloe all right new ad this is dave i wanted to tell you guys about a new podcast from my friends at colorado public radio that i think you'll love It's called Back From Broken. It's about recovery, the highest highs, the darkest moments, and what it takes to make a comeback. You'll meet guests who deal with substance abuse, PTSD, gambling addiction, and hear how they turn their lives around. Some guests are famous. Others just have amazing stories that are raw, funny, and actually really hopeful. Listeners on Apple Podcasts call it powerful, gutsy, and relatable. Find Back From Broken from Colorado Public Radio on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you may listen. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you, most importantly, by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the power and the passion of the Dopey Patreon account. It's www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast, and the Dopey Patreon page is popping. That's a real alliteration. We have content every week. You hear from fans. You hear from addicts. You hear nice, funny stories. And it's all for free at the Dopey Podcast Patreon page. To help us make the show, kick down a couple bucks. If you're enjoying it, if you're enjoying the show, what the hell? Also, we have amazing gear. We have amazing shirts, hoodies, um, tank tops, all available at DopeyPodcast.com. We partnered up with this company called SRO Prince. SRO Prince are a bunch of recovering junkies just like you and me, and they have put together some really cool stuff. So go to www.dopeypodcast.com and check out the stuff. I still have some snapbacks and some stickers. 
I haven't shipped since fucking late February. So I know you guys are going to come after me with pitchforks and fucking torches in a second. But finally, I feel comfortable. The first shipping is going to be this weekend. Look for it coming soon. Hit me up at Venmo if you want anything. And uh, enough with the ads. Here's the fucking show. Welcome to another episode of Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And it's and I'm Dave, and I'm in my attic, and I'm on uh, Skype with a, a YouTube sensation, Jess Kent. Or Jessica Kent or Jess Kent? What should I call you? I prefer Jess, but everyone says Jessica. Seems very Jess, proper. Jess Kent is a, a YouTube sensation. She is a recovering drug addict. And the, the crazy the crazy headline on Jess is that she gave birth to her. It's your daughter, right? My daughter, yeah. Your daughter in prison, and um, and I think we have a lot in common because I think I only found recovery uh, because I wanted to be a good parent too. But welcome to the show. It's very exciting. Yeah, thank you. It's nuts. Um, Jess is in Chicago. I'm obviously in New York, and um. You know, I like to start these things at kind of like how did it all happen in the first place? Like what brought you into into being on drugs in the first place? Um, honestly, I wanted to have a good time. And I'm, I'm such an awkward person that using drugs and it started with alcohol using alcohol and using drugs made me feel good and I could socialize and I wasn't that weird, awkward ass kid reading books in the corner anymore. I was, I was the life of the party. I was, I was like Chris Farley, you know, just acting crazy, acting stupid, breaking shit and having a good time at parties. And that started at a very young age, like 12, almost 13. Wow. Yep. And, and that led alcohol obviously led to a pill addiction and pills, that was my drug of choice. I loved that feeling. And then pills became harder and harder to get in New York. And that switched to heroin. And heroin's cheaper. Where in New York are you from? I'm from upstate New York. Where at? Like uh, Binghamton area. All right. I went to school in Ithaca and I went to school in Westchester. And I, you know, I love upstate New York. Yeah, I got a little upstate New York vibe. And, and so you were like doing oxys upstate and then it was like there were no more oxys kind of thing? Right. There were no more oxys. They actually turned into these like Skittle things and you couldn't shoot them anymore. You know, so they, they were just weird. And I got tired of looking for the real oxys. And, you know, someone's like, hey, you want to try some heroin? And at that point, I had a little bit of like a prejudice against heroin when it was first introduced to me. And I'm like, I'm not going to do heroin. I'm not a heroin addict. I'm better than that. I'm a pill addict. Like, what the fuck? It makes no sense. But you know how we get an addiction. We're just like, oh, I'm not that person over there. And you put these addicts in a box and you think you're better than whatever the worst addict you think is, you know, and I'm like, I'm not a heroin addict. I'm a pill addict. What? No. And uh, eventually I tried heroin and I was like, oh, this is great. I feel great. But you had been shooting the pills before you ever got dope, right? Um, I, what did I do first? When was the first time you busted out a needle? Like what was, how old were you? What, what was the story? 
I was 17 when I first busted out a needle. And the weird thing about that is no one ever asked me how old I was. Like I was always the youngest person around and it was just like a normal thing that I was just bartending at a family's bar and like partying. No one ever cared that I was 17 or younger. <laughs> um, I'm sure it was appealing to people that you were this young, pretty girl kind of thing, right? I guess. I mean, you say pretty. I have like a pound of makeup on, but <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I was just at this uh, party one time and, a, and a, a friend, insert air quotes, was like, hey, you're really wasting this dope here. You know, you could use a lot less and get more bang for your buck. And of course, like hustler Jessica is like, oh, I can save money and shoot it and I'm going to feel better. And, um, I shot it for the first time in this like really nasty trap house. And I, I loved that feeling, but I didn't use the needle every day from that. I tried to cut myself back. I tried to, you know, not feed into that as much. And a lot of time, ever since I was like 14, 15, when I first started to try pills, I tried to stop a lot because I thought, you know, if I, if I stopped a lot, then I wasn't really an addict or I could keep myself in control. So I did try to stop using a needle and that didn't last for very long within probably eight months. It was an everyday thing. I could not stop the needle. How did you find, I mean, like what was the first trap house, you know what I mean? Like you say it so casually, you know, like when did, when did you walk into a trap house the first time and be like, I'm comfortable here. Like this makes sense. Like, can you walk us through that? It's a really good question. Um, my family members, um, are, are very different. Let me, let me, let me back up here a little bit. My, dad, my dad's side of the family is very conservative, very, uh, very Fox news. And, and they're, my dad's a, a radio host and my stepmom's a teacher and, you know, they're, they're very, you know, conservative. My mom's side of the family, they're hippies. They do festivals. They're very different than my dad's side. My cousins are all 10 years older than me. They're all guys. And they had a trap house or four. And I was very, very comfortable there because it was my family, you know. And they also, uh, one of my cousins owned a bar and I would bartend there sometimes. Unbeknownst to my dad, I would kind of sneak off and just do my own thing. Um, and that's how I started selling drugs because my, my family members were. So you were comfortable in the trap house. And when you started selling drugs, like what was that? What did you first start selling in the first place? I started selling weed. What was the first time that you got busted? The first time I was arrested, I was actually like not officially arrested, but I was like nine years old and I ran away from home. Um, And I'll never forget that. But um, I kept getting arrested for drinking underage, possession of alcohol. And then eventually at 16, I was arrested for criminal sales of a controlled substance and criminal possession of a controlled substance. I had sold pills to a kid who overdosed. Um, he, he survived, thank God. Um, but at that moment I was really just an angry, pissed off kid. I was mad that he snitched on me and I really had that ingrained in my head. And, um, I was in high school and the kid came back to high school and I actually threatened him and I threatened his life because he snitched on me. How did you threaten his life? What did you say? Yeah. Well, he, he's like six foot and I'm like five, five, you know, and I walk up to the six foot kid and I'm just like, if you ever fucking tell the cops anything about me again, I'll kill you. And just looking back on that, I was crazy. I was crazy. I should be grateful that he is alive, you know? Well, you, you didn't, you, you didn't want him snitching you out, you know, <laughs> you, you really? didn't, you, and he, but he, then he just turned around and snitched you out like for, for threatening for not snitching. 
Yeah. Like, um, yeah. So he, he told, you know, his parents or whatever, the cops, the, where he got the, the pills. And I was in my English lit class and all the cops came up to the school. And as a joke, you know, I, I already don't want to be in school. I'm skipping school all the time anyway. And I looked out the window and as a joke, I'm like, oh, who are they here for? And, you know, the class kind of laughed a little bit. And within like 10 minutes, they're knocking on the classroom door that I was in, pulling me out. Right. And in your high school, like how bad were you comparable to other kids? Was was everybody at the trap house? Was a ton of people buying and selling drugs? Like how how ingrained in the culture were you? So no one in my high school was doing anything besides drinking a little bit and smoking weed. So who else could they have been coming for, Jess? Who else? I mean, they had to have been coming for you. Well, it's literally just me, and they know that. Um, you know, so they the cops had come up, and my principal, who already hated me, and I was already, like, on really thin ice. I was about to be expelled anyway. Um, he He's like, where's your locker? And I took the, a wrong turn, and I try to open up my friend's locker. And he's like, no, 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 your locker is this number. And we have to go back. And I'm like, I know that I have weed and I have pills in my locker because that morning I just got sloppy. I didn't want to leave that, the, the drugs at this abandoned house that I had been leaving my drugs at. So my parents didn't find them. I wanted to take them to school because I had a few sales later in the day and I didn't want to have to take the extra time to go to this abandoned house. So like my heart is pounding out of my chest. I'm like, fuck, you know? So they open my locker and they find all the stuff and the cops asked me a few questions, and I was really resistant to that. And the principal, with the cops there, they called my dad. And I'm like, fuck, dude, my, my dad's going to be so pissed. You know, I've already gotten in trouble for having several fights at school and showing up drunk. And I was just already just a shitty teenager, like a parent's worst nightmare. And my dad just surprised me. They put him on speakerphone. I'm like, he's going to freak the fuck out. You know, like, this is a big deal. My dad yells at them for interrogating me and searching me without him being there. And I was like, oh, my dad is so awesome. Like, I'm a minor. Fuck all of you. Like, what are you going to do to me? Nothing. And that was just the worst thing that could have happened is my dad defending me because now I have the worst attitude ever. Because you felt like you you were entitled or like that you were above the law or something. Did he know that you were guilty at the time? My dad, and I actually have an interview on my channel about it. My dad was in such denial that his daughter was a drug addict or a drug dealer. He really did not think I would be that person, you know? So he, I think he knew, but I think he just didn't want to believe it. Right. And then being a conservative guy he's like protecting your rights and what's you know like they don't he doesn't want law enforcement to be able to get over on you and like i get it um do you remember how old you were or like the feeling when you knew you were actually an addict like like when did that come to you oh that happened much later you know still i i've had so many so many instances where i didn't think i really had a problem Um, I left New York in 2011 and I actually ran from a bunch of felonies that since got dropped because I was honestly innocent of these felonies. Like the only time I was ever innocent. What were the false charges? The false charges were conspiracy to commit armed robbery, grand larceny, false written statement and false police report. And they were all not real. Well, (laughs) there we go. I, my boyfriend at the time robbed a store that I worked at. So it would have been very difficult for me to fight that case because my my arrest record was shit, you know? And even though I didn't know it was going to happen, I already felt like if I didn't run, they were going to prosecute me. What store was it? It was a smoker's choice, a smoke shop in upstate New York. 
like it was like a head shop kind of thing. Tobacco shop or like a head shop? Like a tobacco store. Okay. Like like where you get like all sorts of cigarettes and cigars and shit. He robbed it because um well, he knew that I'm small and he could just come in and just freaking take whatever he wanted. But he did that because I was in debt to a dealer for over 30 grand and he wanted to rob some stores and pay the money back because I had put a lot of pressure on him to help me get out of debt, but not by robbing fucking stores by selling drugs, you know? So he came up with this idea on his own. He served the time. He, he did a few years on that. And the charges got dropped because I'm in an Arkansas prison and there was only circumstantial evidence against me. Like I knew the guy and I worked at the store and they just didn't have any evidence to extradite me and formally charge me. How did you wind up in the Arkansas prison? There's so many, there's so many things happening. There's so once. much. I know. Let's, let's start with the third. I want to start with the $30,000 debt to the dealer. Like that's not just like a few bags of swag weed, right? <laughs> right. So I eventually um, got promoted <laughs> and I, I was no longer selling dirt weed. I was selling heroin. And, and, and did you start selling it just so you could afford it? Not at first. Um, I, I would like to say that because then it kind of makes me a little bit more innocent. Like, oh, I was just a drug addict. I was addicted to making money. I was addicted to every piece of it. I was, I was addicted to selling drugs, counting money, putting drugs in a rig and mixing it up and putting it in my arm. Every single little aspect of drug addiction and drug dealing, I was completely obsessed with and addicted to. So I want to say that, oh, I was just an addict, but it's really not true. I, I loved making that money. And, and that was always the pull. You know, I, I quit a few times and the, the money just always kept bringing me back. Well, I mean, you could say you were addicted to drug dealing. You were compulsive about drug dealing. It doesn't make you any less of an addict. It makes you a little bit less of a heroin dope fiend and more of just a dope fiend dope fiend that needs to, like, you needed the action. I mean, don't you think lots of... I know that, you know, I I, I never sold heroin to make money, I, and that doesn't make me any better of a person because I couldn't handle it. You know what I mean? Like, when I tried to sell heroin, like, I would take it all... And I would be in debt and I was too, I would get into a thousand dollars in debt and then go to treatment and like my dealer would get busted and I would survive. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like I, I, I never got into, I also like, I don't know, like the money didn't do it for me and I was too fucking strung out and, and high in order to, to do it. Like, why don't you walk us through that? Like, it takes a lot of fortitude to be able to like run a drug operation and have a heroin habit. What was that like? That's the thing. It eventually collapses and it just implodes on itself. Um, at first, I was single, living with a roommate in this janky ass apartment in New York. And I I felt so free then, you know, because I, I was no longer with my parents. I was young. I could do whatever I want, come and go as I pleased. And I, I loved the freedom of that. I had recently gotten off of parole. Um, so I, I really just loved everything about just being young, single, free and on my own. And I like to make money. So, um, at first, when I first got into selling heroin, I wasn't shooting it every day. And I really just tried to, to restrict myself or sometimes I would switch to sell Coke, which wasn't my thing. I didn't like it at all just to keep myself in check slowly, but surely, um, I got together with this guy and I was now paying for his heroin habit and my heroin habit, my friend's heroin habit. And over the course of two or three years, I was selling for this guy. Um, it just got bad. You know, my re-ups were, were, um, like $10,000 re-ups, but then I, 
come through with two grand. <laughs> and then sometimes I might come through with seven grand, you know, and I'm, I'm more, I'm worth it for him not to kill me because sometimes I come through and I'm on point. Sometimes I don't. Um, but you're always going to have something for this guy. So he's like, let's see what Jess has this week. You know what I mean? If it's five grand, if it's two, if it's something, because you need the float, you need money to be coming. So it, it actually, it got so bad. I, I had a few runners and there was one point where it was over $30,000 and I'm like, I can make this up in a weekend. And I called a bunch of people in and, and we did, I, I paid him $30,000 in one weekend. And, um, within about four months I was back in that same amount of debt. So it was just a fucking roller coaster. You know, I, I might be on top of the world this week, but in a month I'm just done or kicked out of my place and I got to spend money on an apartment. There's always some crazy ass reason why Jessica doesn't have the money, whether she shot it all, gave it to her boyfriend, had to get an apartment. I paid my mom's bills. There's always some fucked up reason. And it didn't start out that way. I always started out on point. You know, um, when I started working for this one guy, I was always there. Sometimes I'd even pay him extra, you know, because the money was just flowing in like crazy, but I couldn't hold on to it. I couldn't hold on to my addiction and, and selling drugs. So it definitely imploded on itself. And you, you started this story by saying you were on a parole from another thing. So like how, like, what do you think your involvement in the, just sort of the judicial system and like, I, I read about you, you know, all these different probations, like you were on like three different style of probations before you were 18, right? Or some things. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was on pins probation through the school for fighting. Um, then I was on youth probation and then, you know, eventually parole. I think the, the question is how much do you think all those probation systems contributed to your addiction? It made me worse. Of course. Seems like it would make me better. You know, they put me in therapy. They tried to get me to go to meetings. They really tried, you know, to their credit. Um, but it made me worse. I thought I was tougher. I thought, you know, I thought I'm a badass because I've gone through this at such a young age. And the New York prison system is a fucking joke. I, I could get heroin just as easily in prison that I could in the street, you know, and I didn't take that time seriously. It was like a little vacation and I'm going to come out and I'm going to sell drugs. And I, it was never a deterrent for me. It was always just like a little pause. Well, you're also a kid. You're a kid and you're learning this vernacular and you're seeing where people get respect and it's like before you I mean I know for myself like before I had real consequences I mean and like really bad consequences it was like it was fun to play along it was cops and robbers plus you got to get high right it was like this fantasy plus the the actual chemical reaction in you it's fucked up it really it has a big it's so effect. bad right? it's so bad um but I you know at a really young age I and this is going to sound fucked up to say, but I can't tell my story without saying this part of it and being honest. I liked the control. I liked the money. I liked the power. I liked people asking me questions like you're asking me. Like It's almost like I got off on being able to control people around me with money, with drugs. And it was really just a sickness in itself. But I remember having a conversation with a correctional officer when I was like 17 and he asked me, like, I'll never forget. I, I even remember, like, what the pod looked like, what this officer looked like and everything. And he's like, Jess, how much money did you make doing this? You know, and I, I rattled off a couple of numbers. And I'm like, you can just read about it in my jacket. You know, and I, I very rarely talk to correctional officers unless I needed, like, fucking toilet paper or my mail. There is a very us versus them thing. So having this conversation with this correctional officer was rare. But, you know, I made more money than he did all year in a few months. 
like two and that's pushing it probably less than two. But I, I knew that and I recognized that. And I'm, I'm also from an area that doesn't have a lot of opportunity and I could make money and I wasn't going to struggle. And, you know, you'd think seeing my parents, my dad and my stepmom work so hard. My mom's a teacher and my dad's a radio host. They work their ass off. They're blue collar people, but they're not wealthy and they do struggle. You know, they, they don't have a bunch of money just sitting around. And I didn't want to live like that. You know, my mom is dirt poor. My mom could barely afford groceries. You know, she's just very, very, very poor. Um, and I didn't want to struggle. So I knew that I, I knew that all these other people were working so hard and I didn't have to when I thought I had an edge, like a competitive edge. You know, like I can make all this money and I can do whatever I want to do. I can pay everyone's bills and I, I can control them. Well, you broke the, the rule, which is never get high on your own supply. You could have been the queen pin of upstate if you, didn't, if you weren't a junkie. You know what I mean? That was my goal. I wanted to be the best female drug dealer New York had ever seen. Yeah. I, who, do, you, do you like, are there stats? Like, do you think there's some sort of like baseball card set of great women dope dealers? Like, do you know of any great women dope dealers of upstate New York? No, I can only think of like one and she's from South Central LA. Who is it? Oh gosh, I'm gonna have to look up. I knew you were gonna ask who as soon as I said that. I'm gonna look her up right now. I think, I mean, that could be a podcast in itself, like great drug dealers of the Northeast. And we could do like, we could put out like cards and stuff. Could be a whole thing. Oh my God. Um, But the funny thing is that, um, I mean, even if you weren't using nobody, I mean, it's very, I mean, I guess some people are just extraordinary business people and they get away with it, but things always go wrong. And like, I don't know, like, I bet you you're better off that it didn't work out. You know, um, what was the charge though? You owe 30 grand. Your boyfriend is robbing you and everybody else to pay back the dude. And, but still, how did you get sentenced to prison in Arkansas? So I went on the run and I, I know this magazine crew that travels the country. And I kind of came back and forth from this magazine crew. And what's a magazine crew? Hold on. What is that? <laughs> a magazine crew is a company that travels across the country and sells magazine subscriptions door to door. It sounds much more nefarious when you say, I know this magazine crew. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, my first day on this magazine crew, I'm like, this is like a fucking cult because they're, they're yelling and they're amping everyone up and then they're going door to door. I'm like, this is stupid. I'm not going to stick around and do this. Um, before I know it, like a few weeks later, I was what they call a queen bitch. (laughs) And it was then that I realized you're not good at selling drugs. You're good at selling anything. You could have done anything. That was my mentality. Like, Oh, you're, you're 20. It's too late. You're 20. You're the queen bitch of the magazine crew. What magazines are you selling? So everything, Maxim, uh, sports illustrated home and garden. What was your technique? What made you such a good, what makes you such uh, a crazy good salesperson? I I honestly think that it's, it's, you're not, selling a magazine. You're selling wit, charm, and personality, you know, and, and that is what people buy into. So they don't really want the magazine. They want me to, to talk to them and hang out with them for a little bit and then they'll buy a magazine. It was very easy for me, you know, cause I'm just like, look, I know you don't really fucking want these magazines. Like who's going to read this magazine? Probably not you. Um, so send it to your mom. It's home and garden sign here. It's 50 bucks. So they get to be your friend for a second. You sell them a magazine and it's like, and you keep it moving. So still, so you're, you're rolling where, where's the magazine? crew traveling to and are there still magazine crews rolling around the, the
the country? So all of my friends have quit magazines and now they're doing something with like energy or something. I don't really know, but they can sell anything and they're, they're so talented. And I kind of just fed into it for a little while, but you could never keep me. I'm always a runner. So if things got too uncomfortable for me or I wanted to get high or whatever, I would just quit. Um, the magazine crew would let you smoke weed and they'd let you drink, but that's it. And that doesn't really line up with heroin addict Jessica. Like, you're not going to fucking tell me that I can't do what I want to do. So I, I was promoted really fast in the company, but I quit all the time. So when I had to run in 2011, um, I called my boss and I'm like, hey, it's me. Um, I need a bus ticket again. And they always got me a bus ticket and let me come back because I'm what they call a cash cow. You know, like I'm going to bring in a lot of cash, let her come back. And when I got there, I had to tell him again, I had to tell him this several times. I have to detox for a few weeks. I'm really fucking sorry that I have to be this person, you know? So the whole crew, we'd stay in hotels and travel across the country. We were in Virginia. He's like, I don't want the crew seeing you like this again. Get your fucking shit together, get sober. And then we can tell the crew that you're back. So I was like, okay, like that's not going to happen. We're all staying at the same hotel. They're going to see me like pouring in sweat, going to the vending machine, trying to get a Gatorade, you know? Is it always, you're always just kicking dope or had meth emerged? Meth hadn't come on the scene yet. I was always kicking heroin. So, um... Uh, eventually, like three or four months with me back on the magazine crew, I was in Vegas. Let me, ask you, wait, let, me, let me interrupt for a second. So like, where does the magazine crew travel? Exactly? They like follow the sun. So they want warm conditions. So if it's warm on the East Coast, they're on the East Coast. If it's, you know, hot in freaking California, but not too hot. So like December, they're there. And what are you doing about scoring dope on the road? I mean, like, that's a, a difficult thing to do. I've been on the road a little bit with a heroin habit and it's always been just kind of the, the best stories looking back, but the worst experience when you don't score, like how did you deal with it? So I'm really good at finding the guy, especially if you're knocking on doors. So I'd always want to be dropped off in the hood wherever I was. I didn't care if I was in Detroit. I didn't care if I was on the South side of Chicago. I've, I've been through here. I know I live here now, but I've been through here many times. It was always really easy for me to find the guy because I'm going to get dropped off in the hood. Um, and a lot of times I'm a really small white girl. So I would have to tell people like, you can sell me heroin. I've got trash marks. I'm not like a new person. I'm not like a new user. Um, I'm not a cop. I'm not trying to bust you. I'm just trying to get my fix. Um, so it was really easy for me to find it because I would just get dropped off. This is really good, by the way, just so you know, like I do a lot of episodes of Dopey, like every week we come out with an episode, but you are so good. These, I mean, sorry, your life is so terrible, but it makes for such a really great episode of Dope. You have to go through some shit to have some good stories, you know? Can you remember any, any time where you were in your magazine world and you were trying to cop dope and it didn't work out? Yeah, um, I actually was, I asked for dope in like Iowa, I think. And dope in Iowa doesn't mean heroin. Dope means heroin in New York. In Iowa, it means meth. And yes. I gave this guy like 200 bucks and he brought oh, me no. a bag of rocks. I was like, what the fuck is this? And I was so mad. I'm so sick. I'm on like day two. And instead of trying the meth, because I would have felt better, I dumped it out in front of him to prove my point because I was so pissed off. Right. Indignant. You were an indignant white girl on the hunt for heroin. I was such an asshole too. And I just dumped it out. And one of the people, one of the magazine crew people that were with me at the time, he's like, what the fuck? Like, I would have done all of that. You know? And I'm like, you can pick up some rocks off the fucking ground. I don't want that shit. I, I just remember, like, I could see it almost in slow-mo, just taking the bag upside down and going, 
like that and just throwing it all over this freaking parking lot of this grocery store. Queen bitch, Jess. I was violent. I was hostile. I was mean. I was just hard to deal with. You know, I really wasn't a very calm person. Did you ever find yourself like in withdrawal, super sick on the road with the magazine? Yeah. um, Sometimes if I had gotten sober... And my boss knew that I was sober and then I relapsed and then we jumped from like Virginia to fucking Kansas. Um, I knew that I was going to be sick and I would just leave because I didn't want him to see me. Like I, I let him down again. Yeah. You got me sober in Virginia and I've been sober for a little while, but within a week I'm, I'm scoring, you know, heroin and I, I buy everything. That was always the key. If you can find the dude when you're traveling buy everything they have. Right. Cause you also had money. You know what I mean? Like that's like, it's, it's amazing. You know, like, I know that when I was in these situations, like I didn't have anything, you know what I mean? I would give them all my money and I know I would be sick. You know, I would travel for TV jobs and I would get sick someplace and I would, and I would always, and I wasn't like an attractive little white girl. I was like a goofy, big white guy that could very easily be a cop. And my line was always, I don't want to freak you out, but do you know anywhere I could get some heroin? That was my line. I don't want to freak you out, but I'm really needing some heroin. Like, what was your line? You, you would just be like going door to door. Like, how many people did you freak out or did you know not to? And I got told no all the time or get the fuck out. You know, I, I got called Snow Bunny a lot. Snow Bunny. To get the fuck out of wherever I was, you know. So far, so far you've called yourself Queen Bee, Cash Cow, or no, Queen Bitch, Cash Cow, and, and Snow Bunny? Snow bunny. Yeah. All right. Well, that's three. I'd get yelled at a lot. Um, so (laughs) I was in Chicago one time and I was at this bus station. Great place, by the way, really, really awesome place on this, you know, on downtown Chicago and, uh, the Greyhound bus station. I was just out there waiting for another bus. I probably to go home or something. And I saw this guy nodding out. In his uh, car, and I'm like, boom. There he is. Yes. <laughs> there he is. And I knock, what's up? And he's like, jumps up, you know, he's like, what the hell? And I'm like, whatever you got, I'm going to need some of that, bro. And he is like, not having it. You know what I mean? Like, he wants to be left alone. He's obviously waiting for someone else, or maybe he just fell asleep on the side of the fucking road. And I'm just like, um, I got money. So what's up? I don't know this guy. Of like, course. So eventually after, you know, a little bit of, you know, um, pushback from him, I have him take me on the South side and get me some heroin. And it it was always just like that. You have to spot it. You have to have a good eye for someone that's using, but a fisherman can always spot another fisherman. (laughs) Totally. There's gaydar, there's Judar, and then there's what we do, you know, some sort of junkie dar. And I, I mean, that's another thing that I think is, is awesome because most drug addicts tend to use by themselves or if they use with people, it's like usually when they're kids and they use with their friends or they find the first crowd of drug addicts. But as soon as you get sick or you get busted, you're usually using alone. And these moments where you run up against a strange drug addict, it, it's crazy because the bond is almost instantaneous. I remember I once went to California and I brought a bunch of dope and I used it with my friend and we ran out in a few days and immediately I was like, I'm hitting the beach. And like, I found this crew of guys that met every morning at seven 30 at Del Taco every morning. And it was like five people that you would never expect to see together. Like one was like the soccer dad and one was like the Mexican cholo and one was like an old professor. And like every morning they went to Del Taco, had coffee until the dude showed up 
and then they would all cop and then they would all go their separate ways until the next day. And I think that you running, like, tell me more about the Chicago bus station, dude. Like, how did you win them over? Um, through my track marks. That was, that was always like a surefire way where people would feel a little bit more like, you know, easy around me because at first you're on edge. I'm, I just knocked on your freaking window and I'm a stranger. Yes. So showing them that like, dude, I'm, I'm sick. And I've, I've tattooed over most of my scars. Now I still do have some on, on the other arm in my hand, but, um, even if I had stopped for a month or two, my tracks were bad. You know, they were, they were always just healing in the process of healing. And then I would relapse and fuck it all up again. <laughs> so that was always the way that I made people understand, like, I'm not here to bust you. I'm a junkie and I'm going to be sick. And I think it's awesome also, like, because you have money, the dude needs money. You need dope. And it's like this moment where like, it's like two very lonely, very sick people can actually help people. It's actually a weird, beautiful moment, despite like the fact that there's a drug habit and criminality and addiction. But in terms of just like human souls, it's a pretty amazing moment where one using junkie can help another one. Right? It really is sick. But I guess if you, if you spin it, it might be a little bit of a stretch. You can see some beauty in it, but man, it, it really was just a horrible way of living. And the ironic thing was I thought the life I'm living now was horrible when I was in addiction. I'm like those people that are working nine to five and not partying, they're not living. That was hard as hell. But what I mean is like, <laughs> When you're sick and you're in a strange spot and you get what you need to feel better, like even just like I'm, I'm almost five years clean. I have two kids. I live in the suburbs. I, you know, I'm in recovery. I have, I, you know, I do not crave drugs, but to remember those moments of being totally down without bereft in withdrawal and, and, and getting to put it in you like, and, and, and create, I mean, I know it's, I don't mean to be romancing the fucking thing. I'm just saying it's a pretty magical moment in, in a junkie's existence. And like, obviously I know your life is so much better. You've been through the fucking mill, my life too. But there's a there's a certain glimmer of beauty there. I don't know. Maybe I'm. I, I do feel I like know. that whole like hustle mentality to get the drug that is addicting too. Even like even though you know you're gonna grumble and complain and be pissed off because you're sick, that whole hustle and then finding it like it. I feel like it just floods your reward system. You know what I mean? And then the drugs on top of it, of course, do. But it was just it was always a rush for me. I liked it. I liked. I liked how people would underestimate me or look at me crazy. And I just didn't care. You know, I, I, maybe I wasn't the typical addict that most people that don't understand addiction think of like homeless on the street, but I, I loved that life for so long. So getting sober, like it, it really was an awkward feeling. You know what I mean? Like, who am I? If I'm not that, if I'm not that person, like, I don't even know who I am. So right. I had like an identity crisis. <laughs> I think that's also because you started so young. You know what I mean? You started so young and you're up against the law so much. But I took you off your, off your path here. We were going to Arkansas. How did we get to Arkansas? So I was in Vegas on the magazine crew and I just, I was getting blacked out drunk every night, puking on the strip, acting freaking crazy. And I was just a mess. Well, I have a friend, an old runner of mine that, um, that lives in Arkansas now. He had ran from New York. He's got family there and he called me a couple of times and he's like, I'm the man. I sell, I sell ice, you know? And I'm like, what the fuck is ice? <laughs> uh, I had no idea what that world was like, what that culture was like. Wait, does he really call you and say, I'm the man? 
Basically, but he was high at like two o'clock in the morning. And as it turns out, um, I decided like, let's go to Arkansas. Fuck it. You know, I'm not really doing shit today. Maybe somebody wants like field and stream over there or Rolling Stone or something. Yeah. And I I wanted to be around someone familiar because I like people on the magazine crew are familiar, obviously, but someone from my hometown that knows me and used to sell drugs for me. I was really lonely at this time. And, you know, my, my boyfriend's in jail, my friend's in jail. I lost my, my house, everything in New York who I am is just gone and I'm just traveling with a fucking duffel bag. So I'm like, let's go to Arkansas. And I get there and the man means I'm a meth addict living in a trailer that should definitely be condemned with no couch. (laughs) And like, it's the weirdest shit ever. And everyone's skinny. And I was like, damn, bro, one dude is taking apart a computer. The other dude's looking out the blinds. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, this is the weirdest shit I've ever seen in my life definitely not going to do math. So, uh, within two weeks I was using math. So what, how did it go from, holy shit, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out with a bunch of raccoons in a, in like a condemned trailer. And then- um, I wanted to get my friend sober and I thought I was going to be able to, cause he hasn't slept and who even knows how long. And like, this is just insanity. I gave up pretty quickly because the person that I knew in New York on heroin that would sell heroin for me is not this person. This is a completely different fucking person. And he is a little bit violent. He's kind of crazy. He's stealing shit. Like, this is not who I remember. And eventually, one of his dealers came to the house or trailer. And I was like, yo, how much can I get for 50 bucks? And he gave me a teener. And that's what I thought 50 bucks of meth was worth. It's not. It's a lot more. And I, I shot up for the first time in this really like gross bathroom. And there's like literally a hole in this bathroom floor that leads to the ground. Like it's so gross. And I I set everything up and I put 20 cc's and then I put like a little bit of water and I mix it up and it comes back 40 cc's and it double backed. And I didn't know what that meant. I'm just like, this is weird and it's thick. So I dumped some of it out. I got more water. I'm a heroin user. So it makes no sense that I got 20 cc's worth of water and now I have somehow have 40 cc's in my rig. Like what the hell? I like how attentive you were. Yeah. Keep going. Thank God. But it was also thick, right? So I had to like squirt some of it out so I could even put it in my arm. So I, I shot up and I went to stand up and I fell. So my, my eyesight just went completely blurry. My face was like, wow, 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 wow. I couldn't hear anything. And I tried to scream out for help because I think I'm dying. My heart's pounding out of my chest. I can't even speak. I can't yell out for help. And even if I could, there's no one in the house like to help me. So I'm shaking really bad and I'm like almost hyperventilating. And I had to tell myself, you need to calm down or you're going to have a heart attack. Right. And I was so scared. So I don't even know how I was able to talk myself into breathing calmly, but I started taking really deep breaths slowly in and out, in and out. And it felt like it lasted forever. The reality of it is it probably only lasted like 60 seconds. Right. I was so panicked. Well, finally the Wawa's calmed down. I could see clearly. I I said something out loud. So I'm like, okay, you can talk still. What the hell? And I stood up and I went to clean everything up because now I can't let the people know that I just got high. I'm trying to get you sober. Like you can't know that I just shot this. And the first thing that came to my mind after I cleaned everything up was I love that. And I have to do it again. Not right. thank God you didn't die. Like I need to do that again. Well, it's like a roller coaster, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I chased that feeling for eight months. I went to California in a similar kind of situation, uh, trying to stay clean, and and went to live with my best friend who I used to do heroin with, and I didn't know that he had found meth. 
You know what I'm saying? And, uh, and he was away for a week and he came home on meth and I had never had any interest in doing meth. And I wound up kind of doing the same thing, but I did meth just so I would get my hands on dope and pills. Like I needed to get up so I could crave being down. And you as a, as a heroin addict, like how did you handle the up? Were you always seeking the down or were you like, you just adapted? You were like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, an om- omnivorous drug addict that it each drug affected you like perfectly. Almost. I, I definitely didn't discriminate ever. And, um, after a while of being on meth, I'm like, I need to go to sleep. Like this is not okay. So I actually was able to find Roxy's and I, that was a lot harder to find in Fort Smith, Arkansas in 2011. Let me tell you, Oh my God. So I would have to trade and like, and beg people to find me pills. And what was weird at that time was people that used meth, and people that used pills would talk shit about each other, right. you know? And I'm like, why? You know, I remember getting in a fight at this uh, apartment complex called the Boardwalk in Fort Smith. It's really trashy. It used to be a hotel and they converted it into apartments. And um, this guy, this like really, really Southern, like hillbilly guy was talking about pill addicts. Now I had just shot a Roxy 40, like 10 minutes before I got there. And this guy was talking crap about them. And I was so pissed because I do both. Like, how are you going to talk shit about a pill addict? You're literally smoking meth right now, dude. You know, both people are just missing out on the the beauty of the other side. You could, you could have like bonded the whole drug addict community in, in this project in Arkansas. Did you do it? Were you like, you give some pills to the meth guys, you give some meth to the pill guys and like come together. Definitely not. But I like, I like screamed at this guy and and yelled at him and and left. And it was just so ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I, I would take Roxy so that I could sleep. And there was even a time where I was so sick on meth that I wasn't going to the bathroom. I'm like, when's the last time you peed? Like, that's wow. really weird to think. So I'm like, I need a Gatorade. And I'll never forget this night. I, I sent someone to the store to get me a Gatorade, but I was like on Facebook or some shit. And they brought me a Gatorade. They set it down. And I'm like <laughs> clicking all over the, the computer and I'm texting someone or doing whatever the fuck I was doing. And then like three hours passed. And um, I went to pick up this Gatorade and I took a sip of it. I'm like, this is warm. Why would you bring me a warm Gatorade? And the person that I was with was like, uh, I got you that like three hours ago. And I'm like, whoa, where did three hours go? What are you talking about? That's the weirdest shit ever. I was losing time. I was losing days. I wasn't even peeing on a normal schedule or sleeping. And I I had little moments of clarity where, where I was like, wow, you should like drink water or set timers so that you remember to pee. Like what person has to set a timer on their phone to remember to go to the bathroom? Yeah, me. That's crazy too. That is it is crazy. How did so what happened there that you wound up doing this crazy time? So I started to sell meth. I had a really good connect and um and you you didn't sell another magazine at, at this point. You were done with the magazine crew. I was I was officially done with the magazines. I really only used them to go on the run from whatever I was running from myself really if you if you look at it. But um so uh, people were bringing meth over the border and a lot of meth was coming into Fort Smith, Arkansas through Mexicans. And I had a really good connect. And I, at the same time, was trying to learn Spanish because I had to learn Spanish now because I know they're talking shit and like I need to figure it out, you know. Um, so I got that connect and slowly but surely I got kind of deeper and deeper into that world. And I was making a lot of money, but man, 
people in the South, like law enforcement in the South, they don't have shit else to do but to follow meth heads around. So they were building a case on me basically from day one, as soon as I got there, you know, so they had pictures of me selling dope. They had me like running all over and I was there for about seven or eight months And I didn't know at the time they were following me for so long because they were trying to figure out where the meth was coming in from, you know, and finally I was arrested October 20th of 2011 at four o'clock in the morning at a gas station, like a tweaker. (laughs) Why am I at a gas station? I don't know. Because you're a tweaker. Are you kidding? They found uh, two ounces of meth and I was immediately arrested for that. And then the cops actually drove my car to impound. Well, it wasn't registered to me. The car that I was in, they drove it to impound. And while they drove it to impound, a gun came loose and they charged me with the gun. But it wasn't found in the original search. And as a New Yorker, I'm like, oh, I can beat this. <laughs> you right. know, like I, I was still like a New Yorker and I thought the, the law was black and white. I thought I could beat it on this. They didn't read me my rights. Right. I think I'm going to get out of this case completely. It's like a My Cousin Vinny scenario kind of thing. (laughs) For sure. You know, I know the law. I can get out of this for sure. Um, So that didn't happen. And they sentenced me to five years under the 50% law. What is the 50% law? Like I have to do at least 50% of my time. Right. So that, that totally rocked you. And like when I was reading about you, I see guns everywhere. And we haven't talked about guns anywhere. So how like how connected to firearms were you? Like when did that happen? So I weigh like a hundred pounds and I'm a girl. So I needed, I needed to have guns around me to protect myself. So you, so you, how, how, but how long did you have guns for? Like, when did you get your first gun and how did you get it? That's a really good question. I was probably, (laughs) I was probably 18 and I, I didn't have a gun while I was living with my parents. They eventually kicked me out while it was like a mutual thing. They were just so over me (laughs) being that fucking person. I think I was 18 when I got my first uh, gun. It was a Glock 40. Do you remember how it like made you feel? Did it, did it like make you feel like, was it part of the rush that we talked about? Probably. I actually never even shot that gun. The first gun I shot was a shotgun, a sawed off shotgun. And I loved that. You know, I was, I was pretty good. I could aim at things pretty well. I loved shooting guns. If I wasn't a felon, I would own them. You know, I, I like to shoot them. I like going to the shooting range and like, you know, doing all of that. I'm also really good at archery, which is like super hella random. Um, but I, I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed cleaning it. I, I liked everything about having a gun. And I knew that if I had that, even though... 90% of the time it wasn't loaded. No one would fuck with me or rob me or try to come near me. So you're like a good shot. You're like a good shot with a bow and arrow. You're a good shot with a, a sawed off shotgun with a Glock 40. You're like, you know what you remind, you remind me of like, you know, the movie Kill Bill. Yes. You're like one of these women. Like, and I'm, I'm like, like not even close to that good. And it's funny. Just my- go with me here. Say, say I'm Annie Oakley with that shit. No. Definitely not. It's funny. My boyfriend is ex-military and he's an expert marksman. He would laugh if I'm like, I'm a good shot because he's definitely way better than me, you know, but I enjoyed it. I I had a lot of fun shooting guns in like fields in upstate New York. So you always had them. Did you have them running the country with the magazine crew or no? No. Um, And the only reason that I didn't have them is I wasn't really selling drugs at that time, but I would always carry knives. So I had this like little ankle thing on my- Did you ever stab anybody? No. Did you ever throw knives at people? Possibly. Did you really? <laughs> I, I liked throwing knives at walls and yes. I, it was just a weird bar trick. You know what I mean? Totally. So 
when you were selling meth, you got a gun and, uh, and when they busted you, you had the gun. Allegedly. But you know, the, the gun wasn't on my person or in a car that was registered to me. So the gun was actually null processed. So I wasn't formally, I was formally charged with the gun, but they didn't sentence me with the gun. If that makes sense. It doesn't, but I'll explain it to me, please. Yeah. Null processed means we know this chick had a gun in the car that she was arrested with, but it's not going to be part of her sentencing structure. So that was good. That oh, was a yeah. good thing. Help me out here. Was this the time where you were pregnant when you got busted? So I was three weeks pregnant when I was arrested. Did you know? No idea. Well, you were tiny, you know, and I think it's hard to, I mean, maybe it's not, but I would imagine it's harder to get pregnant when you're super strung out on meth, but that's probably not true. People say shit like that, but I've seen a lot of, a lot of situations where that's not the case. Um, I was at the time on birth control. So when this nurse told me I was pregnant, I was like, bitch, (laughs) you got the wrong one. Like you've messed up these test results so bad that you're saying I'm pregnant. Like I'm not that, that person. I can go to prison. I'm not going to prison pregnant. Are you out of your mind? You know, I, I thought she was crazy. So you go to, when you get busted, you also don't have a heroin habit, right? At this time, it was meth. And then Roxy's on the side, but meth was really way more powerful than a pill. So I wasn't in full-blown withdrawal. It was meth. And the only thing that I I felt on meth coming down was I was very, very anxious. I would fiend. And I would would pick at my lip a lot because I was just anxious, like bad. And I would see people pick, but I didn't start doing that until I was in a jail cell, like detoxing from it. And that's right. when I realized, like, oh, fuck, I really was addicted to meth. Um, right. I slept a lot, wasn't hungry, I was nauseous. I don't know if that was because I was pregnant and I didn't know and I was coming off meth or it was all of it together, but it was really rough those first few weeks. How was it when you found out you're pregnant, you're in jail, you're kicking meth, you're, you, you've, you've basically, you can look back at your life uh, in this totally different way. Because there's a, a, a baby growing inside of you. And, and how old were you when that happened? 23. Yeah, you're fucking 23 years old. You've basically destroyed your life and, and you're about to destroy somebody else's life. Is it a wave of, of guilt or like what, what does that feel like? At first, it was complete denial. Like right. no way am I pregnant. <clears throat> So I, I really just, I didn't believe it. I didn't want to talk about it. You weren't going to talk about a pregnancy with me. I'm not pregnant. <laughs> that took a while for me to even come around to the idea that yes, you are pregnant. You need to, you need to take care of yourself. You need to take care of this baby. Um, I, I, I honestly was facing a lot of time in prison had I not been pregnant, I would have signed a 10-year plea, which was my second plea, and I would have served 50%. I would have done five years. I was completely fine with that. But this time I'm pregnant. And when I finally started to like come around to the idea, I wasn't fighting for my freedom. I was fighting in the county jail and, and denying these plea agreements, not for freedom, but for you know to be a mother. I was fighting for my daughter. If I'm gone for five years, she's not going to know who the hell I am. And how did, but how did that start even coming into your consciousness? Because your consciousness up till this point had been making money, getting high, you know, being a kid, being reckless. Like that's such a huge, like revelatory shift in your consciousness. How did that even happen? Like, can you describe it? 
Kind of. Um, so when I got arrested, you know, the cops are asking me all these questions. I'm like, fuck you, fuck you. I don't want to talk to you. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you anything on me. And I was very like just resistant to the cops, resistant to plea agreements. And I didn't even want to talk to them. They kept pulling me out of this cell because they wanted to know where this meth was coming in from. You know, and I'm like, you fucking know everything. You have my picture in a drug deal. Figure it the fuck out. You're a crime stopper, you know? And it was really just the street mentality, the drug dealer mentality. And then about 90 days in, I was like, this, this is so much worse. You know, I, I really am pregnant. And I had met a, uh, <laughs> a biker chick from California who had stumbled into an Arkansas jail, who had gotten charges in Arkansas as well. And, you know, she really helped me to understand like, girl, it's not just about you anymore. You, you need to not sign a plea. You need to fight. Um, you need to do this for your baby. And if I didn't have someone to confide in during that time, if I didn't have someone that I liked, I don't know how I would have um, eventually come around to the idea of being a mother. But it took a long time. It took a right. long time to even be okay with that. Even at like nine months pregnant, I'm sentenced. I'm in prison. I tried to still ignore it because this is, this is hard. This is traumatizing. This is embarrassing. This is, it was just such a dark period. Um, my daughter was eventually going to have to go to DHS and I knew that was happening. So I, um, I didn't really have that change of heart, not fully. I mean, I definitely didn't want to go to prison pregnant and I didn't want to put a baby through that. But when my daughter was born and I saw her cute little face, it's like everything in me changed. Right. That was the moment for me when I could actually hold this baby and see this baby and look at her. And I'm like, wow, you're, you've been a selfish piece of shit your whole life. It's not about you anymore. It's about this little girl. You have to fight for her and you have to give her the chance at the best life you could possibly give her. And that kind of set in motion every goal that I've had since. I just graduated with my bachelor's degree. Um, I have YouTube, but I just started a podcast. Everything that I do stemmed from that moment with my baby. I just gave birth to her. I'm in fucking leg chains immediately after birth. I mean, it was a very, very dark situation. I, I consider this biker chick woman to be kind of like a mentor. Like did, did she, t was she in recovery? She was in recovery. Um, but she was like, she would always describe herself as Batman behind the computers. She was in for check fraud, you know, and she'd write all these bad checks or, or print out these checks. And she was really smart, but a criminal, obviously <laughs> I've met the smartest people in prison. I know most people don't understand that, but yeah, she, she was in for fraud and she was a recovered meth addict. And, you know, she, she really just helped me understand, like, this little baby is going to change your life. And I didn't even see it that way at first. You know, I just saw like, this is a problem that I have to figure out. I didn't, I didn't make the connection between you're giving birth to an innocent little baby girl that you have to be there for. You know what I mean? That took a lot of time. It took me years. You know, I didn't obviously give birth to my first daughter, but I, I had heroin in my pocket when my first daughter was born. And it took me, it took me years um, to get totally understanding like the difference between being about recovery or not being about recovery. When did like the idea of actually being in recovery come to you? Was it before you saw the, the, the baby or was it afterwards? You know, later on in my pregnancy, I wanted to 
but I didn't believe in myself. You know, I didn't believe that I could or that I even deserved to have this baby. And I was really damaging. And I said a lot of negative things to myself. And while people that watch my channel, they, they might think that I'm, I'm really, really strong or, or I'm this or I'm that, but that man, that took a long time. I wasn't strong. It was when I saw my daughter that I knew that I was done before that I wanted to, but I, I didn't believe in myself fully. Once she was born, I was like, that's it. I mean, I'm done and I'll do whatever I have to do to get her back. And it wasn't really like, I'm going to live my whole life sober and it's going to be this great thing. It was, you have to get out of prison and get your daughter back and do whatever they say, because if you don't, you're going to lose her. And then after I had her back, I was like, wow, you did that. And then I finally started to get a little more confident, a little more comfortable in my own skin. And I started to learn how to be a mother. I mean, I had no idea how to make freaking spaghetti. I mean, I was just so like, I was so street, you know, but I was dead broke. So I can't just order you food all the time, kid. Like we got to learn how to make spaghetti. We can do this. It's fine. Um, so it's yeah, a great it, adventure. Yeah, it was, it was a one step at a time one Dr. Seuss book at a time, she kind of just chipped away at this like hard shell of a person that I was, you know, and she really just made me a completely different person. And it sounds, it's, I mean, like just from listening to you, it doesn't sound like 12 step was a part of this thing. 12 step was not a part of it. And I know that's really surprising to say. Um, I never felt like I belonged at a 12 step meeting. And I think it was because when I got out of prison, I had already had two years sober. And, you know, I, I wanted to talk about science and psychology, and they kind of just stepped on that. And they're like, oh, we don't talk about outside text here. And I'm like, well, fuck. Okay. Um, cool. And they're like, well, you're, you're this amount sober because you're out of prison. But I was like, no, I'm two years sober because I, I, you know, two and a half years sober. Like I, I got sober on this date. And, you know, after that, I just had kind of a bad experience about it. I met some amazing people in 12 step programs and I'm so proud of the people that I've met across the board, but I just felt like I was a brick in a cement street. Like I, I didn't feel like I really belonged there. And it doesn't even matter. I mean, like I, I never felt comfortable in 12 step ever until like I couldn't figure out how to do it without it. You know what I mean? So I just like went and I, I needed the Ikea furniture model of getting recovery. You know, I needed like, okay, put this here, do this. Now you had it all sort of like transferred to your brain and your soul. The second you had a baby in you and you saw your daughter. I mean, like there is no one way. And I think like, that's the most important thing that I'm coming to kind of figure out in, in, the experience of doing our show and just having recovery and being around people who struggle, like there isn't an answer. Try whatever you can do to get someplace, you know? Yeah, there, there is no one path to sobriety. You know, my, my way was prison and abstinence. That's not the way. And pregnancy. <laughs> pregnancy. And pregnancy, yeah. That's just a way. You know, I'm not out here telling people, oh, go get pregnant and your life will be great. Like, no, dude, don't do that. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it was 12 steps for you. Maybe it was jail. Maybe it was treatment. Like maybe, maybe you're on medically assisted treatment, whatever you have done to pull yourself out of that lifestyle. I'm proud of you. And I think it needs to be talked about more. Like there isn't just one way to recovery. We all find ourselves into addiction for different reasons. So we can't, we can't say that this one way is going to work for everyone. We're all different. Our brain chemistry is different. We're different people. You know, what works for you might not work for me and vice versa. Totally. Um, I tried to invent a movement, like I've invented a fake movement, which I call the alt-recovery movement, which is basically the alt-recovery movement says that whatever, whatever you can do to like unfuck yourself 
is is it you know what i mean and if it's pregnancy in prison if it's dungeons and dragons if it's fucking archery and shotguns if you're not using and your life is better good for you you know what yeah, i mean absolutely I see like just through your thing, like this YouTuber, this prison YouTuber thing is a very big deal. What, what is it about? I don't know anything about it. Um, way to not watch my channel. Uh, no. I've watched a little bit. I've tried to, I, I've watched it about as much as you've listened to Dopey. So I think we're even. Touche. Uh, so I, I have found creative ways to not only share my story, but to talk about prison reform, which I'm so passionate about. So my channel is a good mix of prison and addiction and mental health and my crazy ass life story. Right. Um, but like, is there a phenomenon that is like prison people that do YouTube? Like, is it a subculture? Is it a big deal? I mean, I think it's a big deal. (laughs) Um, I, I think it's really cool that people from my background can get employed through YouTube. So it's no secret that YouTubers make money, you know? So seeing people come out of prison and share their experience and share their story, I think is really cool, you know, and they don't have to pass a background check. You can just record. And not only are you helping people that have been through the same shit that you've been through, but you're helping people that have family members in prison, or we're just entertaining people with our crazy shit, you know? So the prison totally. community is definitely a thing, and I think it's so cool. And I've got a lot, a lot of friends that share similar stuff on YouTube, and it's kind of inspiring if you think about it. It's incredibly inspiring because you went to the belly of the beast. I mean, like drug addicts, you know, we all experience some sort of level of of we all have bottoms, you know what I mean? And we all and if we get into a recovery, we kind of find our way out. But a lot of our bottoms run up against the law because. Drug addiction is criminality. I mean, I was fortunate in that I, I just wound up going to holding cells in Manhattan, you know, a few times. You know, I never, I never was in a situation, probably because I never had any money and I was never the queen bitch of the magazine circuit. But I never like, you know, I, I would just do a couple nights in the tombs in lower Manhattan and then be like, holy shit, that was terrible. You know what I mean? It was never like, but Chris, my, my partner who died, he did a year and a half in, uh, in, in jail in California and um, and we did a couple episodes that were just called prison stories, and he would tell these prison stories, and it really attract. I mean, so many of our listeners have been through similar things as you have, or he has, and um, I think both of our situations is about attracting people that want to have a better life and are entertained by the ridiculous shit that we did. I think it's really cool that, that people are inspired. Like if I got my life together and I came out of prison with sweatpants, a torn up Bible and shower shoes, there's no reason why you can't, you can't do it too. You know, I'm not, I'm not stronger. I'm not better. I don't think I'm thug or gangster because I went to prison. I think that I'm strong and I can overcome almost anything, you know? So when, when shit gets bad today and I, I have obstacles or, you know, I struggle with depression and, and other things. I always think back to the day I left prison. I left prison homeless with fucking shower shoe flip-flops Give on me my feet. One you know, I didn't per, have I mean, anything. Like, I want to hear a little bit about women's prison because people will be pissed that I never circled back. Oh, for sure. Um, so I have a friend uh, that did time in upstate New York uh, in Bedford and she was pregnant and she was able to have her baby while she was there. And while I was in New York, I knew, man, if I could just get to Bedford, which is a, a prison, a woman's prison in New York, I could have my baby for a year. 
Well, my friend, um, I, I used to sell her dope in New York. She went through the same thing I went through, but in New York. So her life was so different. She had her baby in prison for over a year and she was able to um, get out of prison with that baby, you know, and, and she is now a recovery coach and she does amazing things. And I'm so proud of her. And it's, it's a little crazy, like comparing notes, like, like my prison experience pregnant was so different. And I wouldn't wish that on anyone, you know, and, and her experience was, was very positive in that she could bond with her baby. And I think that's what we need to do. I think more prisons need to accommodate pregnant women for the baby. You know, like you, you don't like me cause I'm a, I'm a piece of shit. I get it, but this is an innocent child we're talking about and they need to bond with their mothers, you know, and that is going to help give them purpose. So um, I don't know if that answers your question. Probably not. No, I wanted to hear violent shower stories and stuff. Cool. <laughs> Violent shower stories. I want to hear like like that ridiculous prison. Like, give me one ridiculous prison story, just just so people can be voyeurs to this thing. So funny. Okay, so one night um, I was in an open dorm, and that looks like a gymnasium with fifty bunk beds, and it's just a really not awesome place to live. So I wouldn't break the law. And we're all uh, we're all cooking. You know, people are making different spreads, and I have a few prison recipes on my channel if you guys want to check them out. They look gross, but they're really good. So we're all cooking, and one chick was a good friend of mine. She's what uh, they called a stud broad, which means like she's, she's big and she's got a shaved head and like she, you know, she's a stud broad. Like she, she's a pretty boy, but she's not, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. She got mad because another girl owed her a pizza sauce. You know, and they're they're making a pizza, and I'm like, oh my god, if she doesn't give that chick a fucking pizza sauce, it's gonna be problems. Yes, fifty cent packet of pizza sauce. So I'm trying to tell you know my stud broad friend, like, bitch, sit down. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. And another girl that had owed this fifty cent. I have to keep saying that fifty cent pizza sauce. She got a little mouthy across the dorm to her, and my friend that was a stud broad comes over to my locker. And she hands me a couple of things, a contraband. And I'm like, please don't do this. Like that is code for I'm about to beat this bitch's ass when you hand over your contraband because you know you're about to go to segregation, you know? And I'm like, don't fucking do it. And I can't even talk her out of it because it's too late, dude. She throws me this shit. Right. <laughs> and she goes over to this chick's um, bed and now they're bunk beds. And she kind of jumps up on the bottom bunk because the girl that she wants to fight is sitting on her rack, sitting on the top bunk. She jumps on the bottom bunk and slaps her open hand slaps straight across the face. And it was like a very fast, like whap across the face. Well, the girl that got slapped got down from the bunk really slowly. Cause she's like, I have to fight her now. And she walks up to my stud broad friend and they have a little disagreement. They just kind of yell a little bit. And my friend hits her in the face, picks her up and like WWE slams her down on the ground. And I was like, fuck, it's about to happen. And the cops see it and they bust in and they pepper spray and they drag him out to sag over a 50 cent pizza sauce. And that's prison life. Well, your stud broad friend couldn't get disrespected. She couldn't have other people knowing that they weren't going to come with the sauce. You got to come with the sauce. And did you get into a lot of fights or no? I was a really angry, pissed off kid when I when I first started getting locked up. Uh, the last fight, I had just given birth to my daughter two months prior. 
and I was helping people with some legal paperwork because I'm like a super nerd. I did not understand Arkansas state law because I'm a New Yorker. And I was like, oh my God, I have to read all of this legal material. And it wasn't until I was in prison that they actually started allowing me to read legal material, which is so ridiculous. They wouldn't let me read it in county jail. And you know, fighting my case, any New Yorker will tell you when they get arrested, they could easily request a legal book. It's like common knowledge. So when I started requesting legal books in county jail, these officers laughed at me. They were like, fuck you, drug dealer. You're not getting that shit. Well, you were a courthouse lawyer. You knew, New Yorkers have to know how to take care of business like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's like your rights. You have the right to understand the law. Um, Arkansas didn't give a fuck about that. And it made me really scared because I was trying to call my mom and asking her to Google things, you know, like Google this law and Google this statue. And I was just trying so hard to understand. So I was, I was very grateful that in prison after I already took a plea, it's completely pointless for me to understand Arkansas state law at that point. But I was excited to learn because what the fuck else am I doing? Nothing. (laughs) Sitting down and chilling and making some prison burritos. Well, this girl, uh, she knew that I was studying the law and she wanted to help. She wanted me to help her with her appeal. I blew her off a couple of times because people told me like, she's got a bad charge, Jess, like this is bad. And they never said specifically what, but my imagination kind of ran with me. I can figure it out. (laughs) I'm not new. I know what bad charge means. It means that she had hurt a child in some way. So I avoided her the best that I could. One day we're sitting at these day room tables. They're metal, they're gray metal tables. They're always cold. Like they're not comfortable to sit at. You don't want to go to jail. Do not break the law (laughs) just for that reason. But I I have all these papers out and these books out and I'm reading and she comes over to me and they called me in New York and she said, Hey, New York, can you, can you read over this stuff and help me with this appeal? I took a deep breath because I don't want to fucking know what you did. I just want to go home. I don't care about whatever the fuck you're here for. Um, I, I very slowly picked up this paperwork and I looked through it for, for a little while and it was so vicious and so disgusting. And what did she do? She, um, she's a sex offender and she was sex. She was sexually molesting her child from birth. Oh, it was bad. Like things I could never say, things I've never repeated. I I would never say on the podcast. I've never even said to my boyfriend of seven years, like it's disgusting. Um, so I, I tried to stay calm and I didn't stand up. I didn't yell at her. I, I closed the folder that she gave me and I slid it across the table and I said very calmly, you need to get away from me. And I, I sat there while she towered over me. I I'm five, five, you know, one twenty at my heaviest. She, uh, is five, seven, probably one seventy five. So she's bigger than me. And she's kind of towering over me. I'm sitting down at the table. She's standing up across from me at the table and she's yelling at me and she's talking a lot of shit. And she's saying that I'm a fucking, I'm a dirtbag drug dealer. Who am I to, to judge why she's there now? Just to give you know your listeners a little bit of a backstory. If you go to prison and you have hurt a child or a woman and you're a man, these are the worst charges you can have. You would think murder would be the worst, but it's not. It's crimes against children. That's the worst kind of crime that you can have. And other inmates will hurt you for it if you're a man. Now, the female end of it is a little bit different and it's not as as violent if you're a sex offender, if you're in a female prison. 
Um, they do get beat up. Don't get me wrong. Uh, they can definitely catch it. But a lot of times they're just walking free in general population. And I've seen that a lot. And I know a lot of people think that women can't be sex offenders, but I have seen tons of them. You know, a lot of them that have abused their children or have stood by and been victims of domestic violence and their boyfriends or husbands have abused children. There's a lot of really sad cases in prison. Oh, it's bad. So this chick is following me all around. She followed me to my to my rack, which is my bed. And then I decide to go to the rec yard. She follows me out to the rec yard and she has her little group of friends and I have mine. And she is talking so much shit. Like she's been to prison before. She's a fucking drug dealer, blah, blah, blah. Like just acting crazy. And I was like, yeah, and you're a fucking sex offender. Like, what are you even saying? But it's been my experience that a lot of people that have these charges are mentally ill, you know, and she didn't see fault in what she was doing. And, and that is a whole conversation in, in its own, but she, she's getting very vicious with me. And I, I did not want to fight her. And I tried to walk away so many times. I don't want to fight you. Did you know, did you know you could take her? Like, did you size her up and were like, I'm not going to, she's not going to destroy me. Are you, were you an accomplished street fighter? Like you are an archer and a knife thrower and Mark's woman. You know, I, I really didn't think that it would go that far, but she is bigger than me. And most people always underestimate me because of my size. I've been in a lot of fights, but I've also got my ass kicked before, you know, plenty of times. You know, there was, a, there was a time where I got my ribs broken and my nose broken and I was fucked up at the age of 13, you know, so I, I've had my ass handed to me before. The only thing that, you know, I knew that I had on her was anger, you know, like once I decide it's, I'm going to fight you, there is no talking me out of it. I'm pissed. Rage. Yeah. And, and I had a lot of bitterness and resentment already because I had just had my daughter and you hurt yours and I'm pissed. So my anger slowly started to get worse and worse and worse. And finally we go back into the unit after we're on the rec yard and she's yelling and acting insane. And we go to the bathroom or I walked into the bathroom and she followed me into the bathroom and she gets in my face and she pushes me. Now, <laughs> As a New Yorker that's done time in New York, I know I've said it a million times, uh, if you hit me first or you put hands on me first, then anything that happens after is self-defense and I'm not going to get charged the same as you. And that's just how it is. Um, everything's different in the South. so It's not that in Arkansas. No, not at all. Well, I could have got locked up just for yelling at her. They don't care. They just don't want their, their shift, the correction officers, they don't want their shift to be hard. So if you're making a scene, they'll take you to SAG. Well, she pushed me and I, uh, I stumbled back a little bit and I caught her straight in the nose and she had fell back and I immediately started hitting her. And the only thing that I have been able to win a lot of fights with is I throw the first punch. A lot of people have, you know, plenty of shit to say until they get hit in the mouth. <laughs> and it's been my experience that women just want to scream in your face. I'm not that person. I'm not that person. And I know that if you catch me first, you're probably going to win the fight. So I hit her and I get on her and I start hitting her. She hit me a couple of times kind of upwards because she was on the ground and I was on top of her. She caught me a couple of times and I'm not going to lie. Uh, she hit me pretty hard, but it didn't slow me down. Well, before I know it, I have someone on my back pulling me off of her. And I didn't realize that it was a correctional officer because no one in the unit said 5050. Like no one warned me. No one was on my fucking side. It's not us versus them in the South. It's, oh shit, the cops are here. Everyone be quiet, apparently. 
You know, I, I was expecting if it was a cop that I would have been warned. In New York, you would have heard some sort of call out, 5-0, something, right? Someone's going to have my back. You know, as soon as I throw the first punch with the people that I was doing time with in New York, they're going to help me in that fight. You know, I was completely on my own. So uh, it was a correctional officer and I, I reached up and I elbowed the correctional officer in the chest plate, not realizing that it's a cop. I thought it was another inmate, you know, and I looked back simultaneously after I took my elbow and kind of put it upwards in her chest plate. And I realized it was a cop and it just hit me all of a sudden like, oh, fuck, I'm fucked, you know, and I tried to put my hands up really quickly so that she knew the female correctional officer knew that I, I don't want to fight you. I didn't know it was you, you know, and it happened so fast. She immediately pepper sprayed me and like direct shot to the eyes almost. And then the person that I'm fighting with on the ground, she gets a direct shot of it. They, they grabbed me so hard and put me like in cuffs and kind of slammed me against the wall while they try to restrain the other one. And I can't see my eyes are completely burning and shut and I have snot running out of my, my nose, tears running out of my eyes. It hurts so bad. And I'm frustrated because it looks like I'm crying because of the fight. And I'm like, I'm not fucking crying. Like it's burning and I'm trying to I hold it. Pepper spray. You're allowed to, you're allowed to cry if you have pepper spray in your eyes. That's the whole point, right? Yeah. But I didn't want anyone to think I was weak and like crying. I'll go to SAG. I don't care, but I'm like trying to choke it back. <laughs> I'm trying not to cry, but I have no control over it. It hurts so bad. So they take me to medical and I, you know, I wasn't in medical for very long. They didn't decontaminate me like you're supposed to be after you're pepper sprayed. And then they put me in, um, in my segregation unit or my segregation cell. And I am in the sink, like flushing my eyes with this water and I am crying and I'm so upset. And I, I punched the wall cause I was so frustrated. Like I just took it here. Now I'm in SAG and it was just such a shitty moment. And I didn't know what was going to happen because I was told by a judge, you cannot do anything to get more time in prison. You're already on the line of not getting your daughter back because you're going to be in prison for over a year after she's born. You're on the line. Don't do anything to get in trouble. And it all just hits me. Like, like this is my fault. I put myself here. I hit her. Like, it just, I'm feeling really guilty. I'm feeling really pissed off. I'm in a lot of pain. <laughs> And to make matters worse, they put her in the cell right next to me. Our vents were connected. So now she's fucking screaming at me still. And I still have to listen to her yell for days, for days. And then because I was serving time at that point, I had been in that prison for about five months and it was a medium security prison. Well, they sent me back to the maximum security prison. They kicked me out of that prison because I got into a physical altercation. And if you're serving time at a lower security prison, you get a little bit more privileges. So they're not going to let you stay if, if you fought someone. So. And the worst thing is that you got into the fight with her because you missed your daughter, because like all of this stuff built up and then it all came out and it, and it damaged what you were trying to do anyway. Um, how did you, how did you work it all out in the end? Like, obviously you're sitting here years. I mean, how many years has it been since you were in, in um, prison? Seven. Seven years since prison. When's the last time you got into a crazy fight in a bathroom? <laughs> it was that time. That's the last time. Like how relevant was it to you when you start fighting for your, for your child? And more importantly, what was it like when you first got out? So um, in my last prison bid, it was pretty well known in Arkansas that I didn't snitch. A reward for that when you get out of prison is that you can get put back on very easily 
um, in the drug world. You know, they know that you're not going to tell. They know that you can go do a prison bid. And I'm telling you that because when I got out of prison, I was released to a halfway house. and I had no money. and I had nothing. And I got a couple of phone calls from, from a friend, insert air quotes, that said, use my name. They, they're they're going to be waiting for you. Let them know I called. Tell them your name and just go pick up your shit and get, and get back to work so you can make money to get your daughter. And that's how they justify it. They knew I needed money and they knew that I was a cash cow <laughs> and they knew that, that I wouldn't snitch. Telling them no, telling them that I wasn't going to sell drugs anymore was so hard because I needed that money. I was starving. I didn't have shit. I needed to get an apartment for my daughter, a car, clothes for her. I, I needed a steady income, but I knew I had to do it the right way. So that was my biggest trigger because once I start selling drugs again, once I start bringing that money in, I'm going to start using drugs. There's no way in, in hell that I can sell heroin and not use heroin. You know, even if I tell you that I'm okay and I tell you that I'm not going to do it and I'm just doing this for right now, I'm lying to you. I don't even mean to lie to you. It's just who I am to do drugs. So I, I'll lie to myself about that to justify it, to go back to it, you know, and I knew that. So I, I had to tell him no. So there was no no even thought of using, was there cravings? Like, did you feel cravings in that period? So because I had been off the street for two and a half years when I got out, I didn't really have cravings to use as badly. It was still there. You know, I, I still I still had dreams about it. I still definitely wanted it. My depression was still a really big part of my life. Not that it is not now. I, I do still struggle with depression. But I was too busy <laughs> to even think about that. I was working two jobs. I had court all the time. Every weekend, I would drive four hours to have a visitation visit with Micah. The visit was two hours, and then I would drive home for four hours you know, and home was a halfway house with strangers. And I had to do that every single week. Every other month I had hair follicle drug testing or they would cut my hair. So if nothing else, the hair follicle testing, um, requirement from DHS that kept me sober. And I would even like kind of lie to myself, like, Oh, don't get high. Um, until the hair follicle test. And then you can go just fucking relax a little bit and do whatever you want to do. I would lie to myself about that. And then another hair follicle test would come up and I'm like, oh, you can't, don't, don't use until the next one. And I, I really was like white knuckling my sobriety for so long. And then eventually it just started to get a little bit easier. You know, I had more time and I, I was working towards things and I was almost, I almost had custody of my daughter and it was just okay. I was dirt poor. I was struggling, but I was doing it and I was really close. So after about a year of, of doing everything DHS asked me to do, parenting classes, NA classes, um, paying my parole fees, seeing parole, visitation, a psychological testing thing, a, a, um, a child abuse test. I mean, you, you name it, they made me do it. After a year of that, a judge granted me full custody, sole legal custody of Micah. And that day just like had me set in stone. Like you did that. You got her. Everyone told you that you wouldn't get her. Every woman that you've ever been to prison with that had lost their daughter told you that the same would happen to you. Um, and, you know, I was just doubted by everyone, by caseworkers that worked in DHS, inmates, just everyone. No one thought I could do it. And I did it. Now I have to figure out how to make something besides spaghetti because there's no way this kid's going to eat spaghetti every night. Amazing. <laughs> so. It's amazing because you basically, you showed 
total willingness to do whatever was necessary to get Micah back and you did it. And it's like, it's almost like, I mean, this is dumb, but you know, in the karate kid where they, they teach him how to wax the cars and then all of a sudden he can do karate. It's like you learn the willingness to get your kid back and it came and it turned you into an adult and it turned you into a sober person and it gave you recovery. Like all these like techniques, you know, it's pretty yeah, amazing. She, she knows I'm very honest with her. You know, she's almost eight years old now. She turns eight in two weeks and I, um, I'm very honest with her about my life and I mean, age appropriately, you know, she knows that she was with mommy when mommy went to jail and I went to jail cause I made mistakes and I broke the rules. And it's funny. My kids now they're cops. They play cops all the time and they write me tickets. And I think it's so funny to give me tickets. <laughs> like I have one like right here on my desk. It says ticket for mom, $100. So they find me all the time. And it's like a little game. Does that trigger you at all? Are you like fucking cops? I think it's adorable and really ironic that they want to be the cops in this situation. <laughs> totally. But now you're still dealing with the cops though. That's the problem. Every day, man. I get these tickets all the time. <laughs> what do they give you tickets for? I think they give me tickets for not playing with them. Like if I'm, if I have to work on something and I'm like sitting in my office for too long, they'll write me a hundred dollar ticket. <laughs> Well, I think you're, you're, you have an epic, epic story. And obviously, like, people are benefiting from your story, from your YouTube, from your podcast. She's got, Jessica has got so much shit going on. It's pretty amazing. You're a very inspiring person. And um, I don't think I've ever, I haven't had anyone on the show this long, for a long, long time. So I really, 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 really appreciate your story. And, um, and thank you again for, for coming through. And so you have an open invitation on my train wreck of a podcast anytime you want. Well, you invite me and I'll come on. And you're going to come on. I have a plan. And this is my plan. That you're going to come. When Chris was alive, he did some episodes that we called prison story episodes. And like, I think we should do a prison, prison story episodes with you. And we can also do other stuff with you. I'd love you to come back. Or joy. Well, I would love to. I'm sure his stories are amazing. So. Well, it's not about, it's, there's no competition. A good story is a good story, you know? So they can find you at Jess Kent on YouTube. And what's the podcast called? Everything is Jessica Kent. So Jessica Kent on YouTube, Jessica Kent podcast. I mean, just make it easy for people to find me. So look up Jessica and you can find her, Jessica Kent. So that was the great Jess Kent. Um, she did bring the fucking dopey. And uh, I don't know if any of you women out there have better prison stories than Jess Kent, but if you have any uh, giving birth in prison stories or just prison brawl stories or, or selling magazine stories on the road, send it to uh, dopeypodcast at gmail.com and, um, and also let us know what you thought of Jess. I thought she was amazing. So it feels to me like I haven't had my sweet father on the show in a long time. And that might be just long enough, but... Something told me we had to have him back this week. Uh, welcome back, Dad. Hi. Hi, everybody. It's nice that you're calling me your sweet father. That's good. That's a that's good, uh, good response from you. Excellent. My father is sequestered upstate, uh, trying to keep his sanity uh, intact. So how are you feeling? Uh, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm feeling all right. But I have this urge to, to drive way up to northern Vermont to try to get a haircut from a barbershop that's open with nobody infected. Uh, this, this hair business is, um, uh, is I, got, I need a haircut badly. It's terrible. And he also, but, he also uh, grew, a, grew a goatee and asked everybody uh, if she, tell, tell the story of your goatee real quick. 
Well, I, I asked people, did it look distinguished or did I look old? I got too many messages saying it looked old. So it's over. Actually, I, I shaved it because it was itching me. That's the reason. Well, do you think a 76-year-old with a goatee is going to look young? I mean, come on. It's not going to happen. I thought I would look. I thought I would look distinguished. I thought it was good. But, but distinguished, it, distinguished, and old can can go hand in hand. Most distinguished people don't look anything besides old. Uh, that's not true. Well, what you can be distinguished what? and not look old? Like who? Uh, I don't know offhand. I mean, you'll. I don't know. Go Google it. I don't know. You can find somebody who's distinguished and doesn't look old. Yes. Distinguished implies old. It's not ancient. It's not. It's not elderly, but it's, it, it implies old. So you, it's a dumb question. Oh. All right. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> okay. Now, anyway, I you know I was looking at the um, iTunes review business. Yes. And when you when you when you type in drug recovery, you used to get ten out of ten, and now you get nine out of ten because the number one on drug recovery is NPR talking about the coronavirus uh, looking for drugs. So coronavirus has overtaken dopey in terms of, uh, you know, looking up on the drug recovery. But I have a feeling you're okay with that. Normally you get upset about stuff like this, but with this... I'm okay with that. I mean, I mean NPR is pretty big. Now, under, under, and under drug addiction comedy, if you did that, you get 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. Very nice. Very... Yeah. Does that make and you feel under... good? That makes me feel really good because you're pretty funny sometimes. Anyway, and then drug addiction. Wait, what's the what's the drug- Yiddish phrase? You have nachis. What is it? Nachis. I'm I'm quelling nachis. You're quelling yeah. nachis because I have ten out of ten drug recoveries. Imagine going back in time and telling you that one day you'll be so proud that um that I have some podcast about drug reco- You know, the funniest drug recovery podcast. Yeah, that would be kind of ridiculous to even think about that. Yeah, that's true. Now that, that that never occurred to me. Yes, that's for sure. Now listeners have been writing in saying that yeah. you won the four million download contest, and I figure. Oh really? You, you, uh, is that because you didn't get any other entries? I I told you before. I I have a very hard time paying attention to this stuff. So what I did was I said I leave it upon. The entrance, if that's a word, the participants, um, to keep track of of what your guess was. So do you know, do you remember what your guess was? Uh, Yeah, yeah, yes, I do. I do remember it. Uh, My guess was 10 o'clock in the morning on uh, May 14th, and it turned out to be 4 million at 10 o'clock at night on May 15th. I was off by, I think, 36 hours. I'm sure somebody did better. So I'm challenging the Dopey Nation. If you did better than 36 hours away of May 15th at 10 p.m. at night, write an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. If nobody can prove, and you have to offer proof also, if nobody can prove that claim, you, my sweet father, have a pair of socks with your name on it. All right, well, but I said I would donate it to the second place winner. Oh, you just, it's just causes problems. This causes problems. Oh, all right. Anyway, if I don't donate it to the second place winner, you know I'm never going to get that pair of socks anyway. You know that. I'm right? telling you, I have, I'm telling you, I have a pair of socks for you, and I will give it to you. It's a new tradition that uh-huh. I'm going to give contest winners uh, their prizes. Um, all right, okay. So I don't know if you're aware of this or not. But last week we gave away our sixth Dopey scholarship. 
and a woman in wow. California got to go to free treatment for 60 days at a treatment center in California called Wavelengths. Mm-hmm. Yes. What, what do you yes. think? That's, what do you think about that? No, I think it's. I mean, this is absolutely incredible. Listen, I, you know, I, I read, I read a lot of the stories from the the Dopey Nation, and uh, and the people are so kind. You know, when they when somebody is is, is sending in those stories, and then the responses that everybody gives. Uh, you, you know, you got like over three thousand people in this in the Dopey Nation business, and and now. You know, people going on scholarship is like uh, amazing, very, very wonderful. I mean, that's look. That's why I'm failing. Come on, that's the reason why I'm failing. There's three thousand. Uh, there's three thousand people in the Facebook group, but there's far more member, more many members of the Dopey Nation floating around in the universe that just aren't in that page. That's just uh, one. Exactly. That's just yeah, one. Yeah, I know. Pocket. But though you're right. But- Right. Those are the people that, that respond in, uh, in, in the, in the, in, on the page. I agree. Yeah, no, there are thousands all over the world. I mean, it's amazing. It's incredible. So, anyway, and they were worried about me, too, which is very sweet, very nice. Yes, they, they, should, they, they are worried about you. And um, I don't know. I think that it seems like this whole COVID thing is, uh, is changing a little bit. People seem less, less concerned. But how are you doing? Your guard is still up? Uh, my my guard is up. My guard is up. And I, by the way, I, I did get tested. I went in and I got the the test for the virus and for the uh, antibodies. I haven't heard back yet. I haven't heard. It back. seems like it's been a long it's, time already. I got tested on Monday, and and you're talking to me now on on Thursday, Thursday before you you broadcast this thing. Uh, I haven't heard from them. They said three to five days, so it's still within three to five days. Now, uh, when I'm supposed to hear back, uh, listen. It, it, the virus is going to end. I just keep. I hope people are just smart until enough people are safe, where the it would be rare to get the virus rather than it, it you know, increasing. So uh, right now, you still have to be on on your toes. Well, most importantly, what I call you, I call you for two things. I call you to yeah, read I the know. reviews, Kvelnakis, Nakis, and. Um, Fucking um, criticize the show. So let's start with you criticizing the show. What, what do you got to say about the show? What's the problem with the show? Would it, would it be unusual if I didn't have any criticism? Would you be happy with that? No, you're just scared. You're scared to criticize. You, 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 well, well, listen. You know, you're so. You know, you're very, very sensitive about that. You're sensitive. I'll tell you, I think you can reach a new level of being an interviewer if you cut down on the ums. Can I I replace all... You would reach a new level. What if I replace the ums with you know and fucking? Instead of the um, I just say fucking and you know. It's better to keep the ums. That would be better. So your only criticism criticism is the ums. No, exactly. I think I think yes. Isn't that wonderful? That's that's sort of like a lack of criticism. I think that your that's, your usefulness for the show is starting to unravel if you don't have good criticism, though. That was a good criticism. You want me to repeat it again? No, not saying um so many times. Okay, that's that's it. I'd I'll like I'd like you to use your uh, your brain in the next episode or this episode is when you listen to it. I would like you to chronicle the number of ums. So then I can work oh, okay. my way down, okay? That would be great. We, you, we can have a contest of how many ums you have. I predict you're going to say um 
27 times. Okay. Well, you can tell us in Dopey Nation. I'd like your prediction of the next show, how many ums I will say, send in well, the prediction. Well, then, uh, wait a minute. You're going to try to keep it below 27 so I lose, I think. No, I already, re- I already recorded this whole show. All the ums are oh, in there. Did. So I don't know how many ums are in there, and they're in there. So 27 is oh, your okay. number. Now, before you go, right. I haven't said um this yeah. whole time. Now, bef- and, and you can't count an um if I'm talking about you predicting me saying um. It's not the same kind of um. So I want you... Oh, wait a minute. That's three... What do you mean? You've been, you just said it three, four times, so I'm not allowed to count those? Those aren't like stuttering ums. Those are actually describing the word um, so it's different. Okay, all right, I agree. Uh, that's fair. Okay. Now, read a review. You're, you're way over time already. Read a review. All right. I got the review. Just, just, just messing around. Five stars. Right? Uh, yeah, I'm with you. Okay. Dave have, Dave have been an on and off listener for the past several, several years. I think you do a great service. Thanks for not preaching the big book. I love listening about your family and hearing from your father. I guess that's why I read it. Keep up the great work. That was a five-star review. Very nice. I'm going to read a one-star review before you go. And this is from New York City Sarah. And it says, by a privileged white man for privileged white men. Which is something you did this a thousand times. I, I really, I really, I, I really enjoy need, this. Nobody needs to hear that one. I sometimes enjoy this podcast, but I'm often struck by the fact that it's mainly wealthy white men who are misogynistic oh. at best. I can't recall ever hearing a story told by a racial minority, and I remember listening to just two by women. The men sharing have wealthy parents. One with a Manhattan apartment that we hear about in every single episode to fall back on. They undergo numerous stints in rehab that would bankrupt most American families. The problem is that there's no self-awareness, maturity, or acknowledgement of the privilege that they are able to employ. Most of the guests would be in jail by now if they were black, some forever due to grotesque mandatory minimums. And yet Dopey is a joke about what white guys behaving badly can get away with. It might be helpful to be slightly less narcissistic and to recognize that recovery stories are more than those of white men with endless memes. Means, not memes. And there you go. Well, New York right. City, Sarah. All right, listen, what she's writing, of course, is very, very true, except for the part about you having a wealthy father. That is not true. As a matter of fact, was her name Veronica? Who is the Monique? Who called this week on the Patreon thing? Well, you're going to cite one. You're going to cite one black woman listener and say the show is diverse. And let me ask you this, Dad: If you're not in your spacious Manhattan apartment right now, why don't you tell the Dopey Nation where you are now? I'm going to tell the Dopey Nation that. Being a teacher in New York City. And, hold up, hold up, hold up. And, uh, I, you're not. Are you in your luxurious vacation home on a lake now, perhaps, Dad? Well, I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call me feeding the mice luxurious, but yes, the mice and I are in the vacation home, which is upstate New York near the Vermont border. And let me ask you this, and Dad. Let me, Dad, 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 wait, wait, wait. Yes. Let me ask you this. Yes. If I was to say you had two television sets, would I be low or high? You would be way low. Okay, well, it sounds like you're doing pretty well to me. More than two yes. television sets on a lakeside luxurious house in upstate New York? Uh, you want to tell the Dopey Nation how that was possible? No, I'm, I'm enjoying the uh, idea of... of 
of our wealth well, and stuff. It's, I can tell the dopamine, which is one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about. The word was financial responsibility. Okay. And me and your mother uh, worked two, three, four jobs our whole lives, saved money for retirement, and then mommy dies after being retired uh, not very long. And uh, saving that money... Um, was because we were financially responsible, and of course, life interrupts with things like people dying, and things happen. But to be financially responsible is one of the things that is next on the Dobie Nation's, you know, things that people should consider. Once you handle getting back, you know, it's important, and I'm talking to you. I know. In terms of, uh, of being able to do this. Well, I think you should have a financial planning podcast called Al-Anon, which helps drug addicts get their money together. That's really a great idea. It's that some- really is a good idea. Because I mean, and, but listen, uh, the people out there, obviously, you take care of your health, take care of everything first, and then you see how easy it is to actually put away some money so that you do have something saved. It, it, is, it is important, but obviously your health is way more important at this point. Well, all right, that's enough. Aren't we finished? We're finished. Um, before we go, you know, Bob Forrest, he sent in, um, he sent me a song. Uh, you know, he texted me a song that he recorded with this dude named Mike Mart. It's a cover of Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb. It's a very popular Pink Floyd song. Have you ever heard of it? No. Okay. Well, after we say goodbye, I'm going to play Bob Forrest and Mike Mart doing Comfortably Numb, and then I will close with a little Good So Bad. So thank you, Dad, for coming on and reading a nice review. And enjoy your wealthy retirement home in upstate New York and, uh, and your white privilege and your long hair and your distinguished goatee. And um, you want to say goodbye to the Dopey Nation? Yes, I want. I want to say everybody, everybody out there, stay healthy, stay strong, and toodles to Chris. And uh, and I love you, and thank you for coming on, and uh, and stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. I say good night, everybody. Good night, Dave.
Until I get some money in my pocket Then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood But I want to be good so bad want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And I want to take a ride up in the sky Airplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people What it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Shadows getting smaller, smaller, and it's time to where I stand. Shadows getting smaller and smaller, and it's time to where I stand. And I wonder would they pay it any mind when I leave this busted city far behind? I'll take the high road, however far it winds. Because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I want to be good so bad want to be good so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had Suckers make me mad.